We're starting a new series, um, working through uh, the middle section, a middle section of the book of Exodus. Last year we did 1 to 15. This year we're picking up at 15, the Song of Moses, and we're moving from the banks of the Red Sea onto the mountain of God. And uh, this morning will be, uh, may feel like to some of you, a survey of the story. Others, it might be new information. Um, I want to offer, at least in our first week, enough of an overview to give us uh, equal footing as we move on. But let me start with this. Eventually, God has the people uh, build an ark. Uh, Not a boat, but a box. It's called the Ark of the Covenant of God. And it is a container... Uh, <clears throat> we have one in the basement, actually. Uh, our fifth and sixth graders made it, and now I don't know what to do with it, because what do you do with the Ark of God? But um, It's a container, and uh, the top of the container had uh, cherubim, which were angelic figures, and they were facing one another. They, and we don't know exactly how it looked, but they were facing one They were winged. And in the middle of the space where they were facing was what was called the mercy seat of God. It was representative of where his presence would actually reside when he would descend into the tabernacle and be among the people. And the glory there, you may have heard the phrase, it was called the Shekinah glory of God. That's where the glory of God would uh, display itself. In other words, in the ancient world, it was the only idol, or the only God, let me say it that way, of all the idols in the ancient world, it was the only God that we can think of whose identity is, was circumscribed by images, but itself was invisible. Everyone else, every other idol in the world would describe its own image. But our God wanted a space where his glory could sit. And the ark was never seen by people. It was, it was really only seen by God and, and one priest one day every year. But in the ark were objects. There were three objects. There was the staff of Aaron. That's what it was called, the staff of Aaron, which is the one that you think of with Moses would carry. There was a jar of manna, which was the bread that would come from heaven. And there was uh, the second copy of the Ten Commandments. The first ones broke. Uh, The second copy of the Ten Commandments. Those were the three things that were in the ark. And whenever the, while they were wandering in the desert for 40 years, uh, when the Lord was ready to move, he would rise, his glory would rise from the ark uh, and ascend into the sky. And then the ark, then the tabernacle would be dismantled and the ark would be covered and then would lead the people. And if they were going to go into battle, if the Lord was sending them into battle and they were going into battle with the Lord, the ark would often lead in battle. When they walked around Jericho, the ark was carried with them. The ark represented God being among the people. That's what it represented. It's interesting that those are the three things in the ark. You ever think about that? Why those three things? Of all the things... Why a box? 
And that's an interesting thought. I mean, he seems to have made, God seems to have made his dwelling place portable in design. Uh, Staff of Aaron, jar of manna, and the Ten Commandments. Well, I want to come back to that idea. So let's leave that there and... and, um, Let's put that on hold and we'll come back to it. That is the God that leads them into the promised land. Let me say that. That's the God. So if we want to think that the Ark of the Covenant of God represents the Lord, if if we can learn from the Lord by that, we could say that he is an invisible God whose glory resides on it, who wants us to know something about him through the staff, the jar, and the tablets. That is the kind of God that leads us home. Now, if we're going to kind of want us to back up and as as overview, uh, I I like us to actually go all the way back to Genesis. And you can stay in, I am going to have the verses up on the page because we're going to start in Genesis 12 and kind of sweep through all the way back to Exodus 15. And the verses will be there, otherwise some of you will get lost. I think if people have to turn pages three times, they stop. That's my theory. So um, I try to be careful with that. <clears throat> but the story, and I will say this, if, you are, if you're not exactly sure what you think of God or church or the Old Testament, if you still live in the world uh, in your mind where the Old Testament God's different than the New Testament God, I want to say, I don't. There is one God. And so this is the gospel according to Exodus. Uh, I will say, though, I want to welcome you in and I'm going to try to go uh, at a way that offers you uh, some uh, foundation that we can build on for the next several weeks. And I want to say that what I'm reviewing from Genesis 12 to Exodus 15 is about 45 pages of good reading. Okay, there's not a lot of pages of who begat who or big words about where people lived. It's, it's good, action-packed reading. And I wanted to breeze through it with the idea of the promise in mind. If... God leads them into the promised land, and uh, it's the ark that leads them. I mean, when he, when the Jordan River is opened up, okay, the ark sits in the river while the tribe passes through. That's just cool. And if God wants us to know himself, if that is in some way representative of the Lord as this, the presence of God resides there and he, he's identified by the staff of Aaron, the jar of manna, and the tablets of the Ten Commandments, the Ten Words of God, these, if that, how, that's the promise, right? When they were embracing the promise for themselves, that's the image of God that led them into the land, I want us to go way back and say, well, what was the promise of God then? And this is the promise of God. It's found in the 12th chapter of Genesis. God finds a man named Abram. He lives far, far, far away. His family hails from uh, south of modern-day Baghdad. and He's living somewhere between there and the north. But the Lord calls to him calls him Abram, that's his name at the time, it later becomes Abraham, but he says this, Now the Lord said to Abram, 
Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great. So you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That was the promise. Genesis 12, it's the first time we hear it. It's the first time the story really starts to get personal. The Bible changes right here. Then Abram leaves. He leaves his country. He travels. He comes to the land of Canaan. That's where the Lord brings him, the land of Canaan, which you would know as modern-day Israel. And he comes and he settles in Canaan. Now, he doesn't claim Canaan as his own. He doesn't put a, climb to the highest rock and put a flag in it and say, I claim this in the name of Abraham or anything like that. He doesn't do that. He goes to the land that God told him to go to, and he lives. He lives with his wife, he and Sarai. Her name is Sarai at the time. They've been married for a long time. They're barren. They're unable to have children. And they, they sojourn to this land, and they live. And they don't live there all the time. Sometimes they flee to Egypt because of a famine, and they come back, and they migrate through the land, it sounds like. They buy, of all the land there, they don't buy any land. Abraham, Abram doesn't seem to own it for himself. The only land he ever buys is a burial plot when his wife dies. That's it. Well, some time goes on <clears throat> that Abram and his wife are in the land, something less than a decade, but about 10 years, maybe eight or so. And the Lord visits Abram again to reinforce the promise. The Lord did this several times in his life. And so in the 15th chapter, the Lord shows up and says, Fear not, Abram, I am your shield, and your reward shall be very great. But what uh, Abram responds to the Lord is, he says, I don't feel blessed. I know you say I'm blessed, but I don't feel blessed, is what Abram says. He says, because I don't have any children. And so, the, whatever promise you've given me, when I die, it's going to go, whatever it is, the promise is going to, my whole inheritance, or everything I am, or every, my whole existence is going to go to Eliezer of Damascus, my head servant. So it doesn't feel, essentially, like there's any story of any meaning coming from me. We have no children. You say, I'm going to be a great nation. We have no children. That's Abram's spirit to the Lord. And the Lord says to him, oh, you're going to have children. He says, from your very body. From you, Abram, will come a child. Abram and Sarah, I don't want you to get... Oh, brother. From you. And he says to Abram, look at the stars. And he says, Abram, if you can count the stars, so shall your offspring be. So not only Abram and Sarah, who are barren, not only will you have a child, but the offspring that are going to come out of you are going to be like Later on, he says, like the sand of the seashore, like the stars of the sky. And he, does, he makes a sign for Abram on that day. It's, a, it's a, a covenant. It's the first time the Lord ever covenanted in the Scripture 
with man. And this is what it says. It's this 12th verse. It says, As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abraham, Now listen to this, because it's got Exodus written all over it. Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace, and you shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. So the Lord earlier assures him, no, you're going to have, you'll have a child who's going to come from you. And then follows that up with this detail about the promise that they're not going to always be in Canaan, but Abraham will pass away, but his, his future generations, they will migrate to a land that's not their own. They'll become servants in that land. They'll be afflicted in that land. And then after 400 years, the Lord is going to call them out of that land with great possession and bring them back to this land and it will be their own. That's what he says here in Genesis chapter 15. And Abraham believes it. Now the Lord promises, reaffirms his promise to Abraham several more times in in his life. Then Isaac is born. The Lord reaffirms and reiterates the promise he gave to Abraham, to Isaac. He says, because of Abraham, your father, I gave this promise to him. I will fulfill it through you. And then Isaac passes the blessing and promise to Jacob. And the Lord does the same thing to Jacob. So now, several hundred years are passing, but the promise is still secure. The promise is still secure so much so that towards the end of Jacob's life, what actually did happen is because of a famine, all of the sons of Abraham, all of the 12 tribes, the the 12 tribes that were now sitting underneath Jacob, all of those family heads had had to migrate to Egypt, and now they're living in Egypt beneath the blessing of one of the younger sons, Joseph, And Jacob himself has been brought to Egypt. And so there's a sense that even, you might imagine, they in their own eyesight know, in in their own experience know that they are being migrating, they are migrating into the place that will one day afflict them. And Jacob, as he's about to die, at the very end of his life, and this is the very end of Genesis, Jacob says this to his family. He commands them, I am going to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron, the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field of Machpelah, to the east of Mamre, in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron, the Hittite, to possess as a burying place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah, his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah, his wife. And there I buried Leah. The field, the cave that is in it, were bought from the Hittites. And after Jacob had said that, he died. Now, why would it... That's hundreds and hundreds of miles to be taken back. Why would Jacob do that unless he believed in the promise? I mean, to me, this is evidence that Jacob is still living with the hope of the promise. We don't, 
really care where we're buried. It's interesting that Abraham didn't buy any land, didn't try to claim any real land except for his tomb, except for their bar- the, the cave in which they were going to be buried. It was as though Abraham was acknowledging the Lord, I know I cannot claim this land in my life, but this will one day be my home, in the home of all my family. And Abraham saw it, and Isaac saw it, and Jacob sees it. Joseph sees it too. Joseph, the son of Jacob, when he's dying, this is what it says. This is the 50th chapter of Genesis. It says, so Joseph remained in Egypt. He and his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years. And Joseph uh, says to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land, to the land he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. I mean, there's, oh, there's several hundred years between God giving Abraham the promise and Joseph saying this. But the family still believes in the promise. I mean, if we were to read Genesis, there's so many action scenes and events that take place between Genesis chapter 12 and Genesis chapter 50. I mean, it's, it's a solid 30 or 40 pages of reading and action, and you can miss the fact that the promise is still alive and well and kicking. None, none of them think that God's abandoned them. None of them think that God has forgotten about them or that the promise was just something that was said to their old fuddy-duddy grandfather. Nobody feels that way. They all feel like one day, as God said, the promise will be fulfilled. Joseph himself knows. He knows the story of the promise. As on his deathbed, he says it. He says, God's going to come, and God's going to take you up out of this place. And when you do, bring my bones with you, because this is not my home either. Well, Joseph dies, and then we move into the book of Exodus. <clears throat> and the, prom- the promise of God begins to show up in the lives of the people. The first way it shows up is they are prolific in the way they multiply. This is how the first chapter of Exodus describes it. It says in the sixth verse, then, when, then Joseph died, and all his brothers in that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Five ways. They were fruitful, they increased greatly, they multiplied, they became exceedingly strong, and they filled the, filled the earth. Almost as though if you could see the stars, so would their offspring be. In fact, it's, that, it's their multiplication. They're flourishing in the land that concerns the Egyptians. This is what it says. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war break out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore... They set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad, and the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. It's like in the affliction, God is beginning to work out the promise. 
The promise is on the lips of God when, when Moses meets him at the burning bush. When Moses arrives at the burning bush and God addresses him, God has the promise in mind. This is what the Lord says in the third chapter. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians. Where? It says, and to bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing of milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites. When Exodus, Exodus begins, it's the undercurrent of this long-awaited promise waiting to occur, waiting to happen. And, and it's, it's happening here. The Lord goes on to tell Abraham, and the way I'm going to do this is in a way that it will be undeniable to you and to all the nations around that people will have no explanation of what happened except to say that the God of the Israelites the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob, he did it. They won't be able to say that it was the benevolence of Pharaoh or the diplomatic prowess of the Egyptians or the strength of the Israelites. None of those options will be available. The Lord's going to do it. He's going to do it all himself. He's going to get all the glory. And the whole world will know that he is keeping his promise. Even when... Moses asked the Lord, what do I call you? And the Lord gave a name. He attached the name to the promise. He said, he gave this mysterious name, I am, which is similar to Yahweh. And then he said, tell them, I am sent you, the God, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. By the time they leave, right? So the Lord brings the terrible trials and the plagues and all of those events which culminate into the Passover where the Lord protects Israel but strikes down the firstborn son of all who do not by faith put the blood on the door. And the very next day, the Israelites are commanded to leave, not allowed to leave, they're commanded to get out. And in the 12th chapter, when they're describing the Exodus, this is what the writer says. The time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of 430 years, on that very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. Why would he say that if he didn't have the promise in mind? I mean, he has the promise in mind. The writer has the promise in mind. I mean, I I believe the story. I, I believe the story as it really happened. But you don't even have to believe. Maybe you're here and you're thinking, well, I don't believe this happened. I still think you can look and see that the author believed it happened. I mean, that the author is connecting it to the promise. Genesis chapter 15, know this. You're going to be a sojourner in a land that's not your own. And you're going to be made to be a servant and afflicted for 400 years. But then I will bring you up, and I will bring you out, and I will bring you back here. And then they get to the point where they're coming up and out of that land, and the writer goes, 430 years to the day. They're counting. And then they cross the sea. 
And then they sing the song. Now, I, I, I want to mention all of this, uh, I guess for two reasons. One, to help us appreciate that this story is promise-driven. It is a promise-driven story. In other words, we could read it and, and understand the individual stories and get lessons from the individual stories, and, and we can talk about the life of Joseph, or we can talk about Judah and Tamar. We can do all these little stories and, and miss this overarching idea that God has given his word to do something, and he's going to do it. And he did it precisely as he said he was going to do it. With precision. I think that's important. The Exodus story, the story is particularly from the Passover to coming out of the Red Sea, that moment. But the Exodus story, but particularly that moment, is the most foundational narrative of Jewish life. God was on a move to fulfill his promise. And Christ has grabbed the story and made and placed his life over it. So our Christian, the most profound narrative of our Christian life, the cross to the empty tomb, superimposes itself precisely and exquisitely right on the story. The Passover is the cross. Coming out of the sea is the resurrection. Even when you read the text between the Passover, between the Passover happening and Pharaoh saying, get out, it feels like three days. It feels like three days from that moment. It's more, but even the way it's just narrated, it feels like, well, this happened, and the next day this happened, and the next day they came out. Do you know, they put the blood on the doors before sunset that evening, as the crucifixion would have been, right? They sacrificed the lamb and put blood on the doors before sunset that evening. Then they're commanded to leave the next morning. And do you know when they crossed through the Red Sea? You've got to forget everything you saw on television. They passed through at night. I have to continually reread it because I can't believe Hollywood got it wrong. But they passed through at night. Do you know when they come out of the, of the Red Sea on the east side? Do you know when they do that? At first light, they ascend out of the sea. We've been buried with Christ in baptism and raised with him to new life. I mean, we pass through the sea even to this day. It says at sunrise, they had ascended up to the east side of the shore and they look back and the army of Pharaoh is arriving and the Lord destroys the army. Now, that's the crucifixion to the resurrection. In other words, the song of Moses is both a triumphant song of the promise and it is an Easter song. It is a resurrection song. You could sing this at Easter. If I was an angel at the empty tomb on Easter and I'd roll back the stone, I mean, that would be a great job. I would, I would try to take that ticket to be that angel pushing that stone if I did that, I would think to myself when he comes out, do I say, do I say, I will sing to the Lord for he has triumphed gloriously, the horse and his rider he has hurled into the sea. I bet you Jesus would look at me and go, that's nice. It's a nice touch. Because it's an Easter song. In other words, Genesis 12 through Exodus is a promise-driven narrative that becomes our Christian narrative right here. 
that before, before we were in Christ, we need to know that we were subjects, afflicted subjects of a king that does not love us, of a king that is worried about us and would have us to be low and servile. We are not, we do not, we are not yet the property of the one who made us, except that God came and got us and took us out through the death and resurrection of his son. And in Christ, not only are we separated from the enemy on the far shore, but the enemy is destroyed in the ocean. That's the story. That's the story right here. This story of Exodus, this promise-driven account, is essentially the story of Christ. I mean, the Red Sea is death and judgment. The dry shore is our resurrected lives in Christ. The real enemy is sin. The real Pharaoh is Satan. The real lamb is Christ. The real Passover is the cross. And here we find ourselves. Exodus 15. And this would explain why the staff of Aaron is in the ark. But not the manna or the tablets. Here's the, here's the, the thing that, that I want us to, uh, to notice, and I'm just laying this before us so that we can move into the next set of scripture well, is if you, if it was the morning of the day when the ocean closed up and you're sitting on the east coast of the Red Sea and you're looking at the waters churn over the chariots and the officers of Pharaoh and you see Moses with the staff in his hand, you know something great and wonderful and awesome about God, but you do not know everything about God. In fact, you barely know God. You barely know him. And the promise of God has not yet been fulfilled in your life. No one, God does not intend for them to think that on the east side of the Red Sea is the promised land. The east side of the Red Sea is hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of miles from the promised land. And those miles they're going to have to walk through. There's no water and there's no food and there's people that don't like them and are going to attack them. And the people in the promised land don't like them and are going to fight to hold on to the land that they have. There's a whole lot of story that still has to happen to truly understand the promise of God. I would say it in this way. In our life, we can believe in the resurrection We can be excited about the crucifixion and the resurrection and all that God has done for us. That story punctuates the whole idea, right? It's the apex, it's the pinnacle of the story of God's promise to us, but it is not. To believe in that does not mean you know God. You know something about God. Some portion of God. God puts the climax of the story at the front of, of receiving the promise. This is strange. You know, everything we do in life, we work hard to earn, and so we celebrate at the graduation. We labor until we achieve, and then we celebrate. That's not the way the gospel works. Christ achieves 
We celebrate and then we labor. That's what happens here. Is coming out of Egypt is, right, God's on the move. In fact, he reestablishes their calendar, by the way. He says, when they're leaving, call this the first day of the first month of the first year of your history. Call this that day. Today, I'm a promise keeper. And you know it. So he does this mighty thing in the front. It's like winning the race before you start. He does this mighty thing in the front, pulls them through the ocean, and then they have all of this journey, this very difficult journey with God to get to know him on the way there. Uh, I think you could break Exodus up into three sections. You could break it up into the portion that goes 1 to 15, the portion of being saved from Egypt. That's, that's the first section. That's God as Savior, okay? That would, that would be like the story of Christ crucified and resurrected, ascended and seated on the throne. Then there is a second story in Exodus, which is God taking the people from the Red Sea to the mountain, during which time... He strips them away of everything that they once relied upon, their entire secular understanding of they don't have food, they don't have sustenance, they don't have jobs, they don't have influence, they're not even warriors, they don't have any of those things, and God then shows them his provision. So it's not enough, in other words, God would say, you don't know me enough simply that I would save you. If you really know me, you must know me as someone who saves you and cares for you. And provides for you. And then they get to the mountain of God. And the mountain, the mountain of God, they learn that it's not enough that God would save us, be our Savior and our Redeemer. And it's not enough that he provides for us, but the Lord gives us his truth and covenants with us and brings us in. In other words, he's our Savior and our provider, and he's our ruler. He's our Lord and King. That's who God is. And that's what's in the ark. The staff is your savior. The manna, he's our provider. And the tablets, he's our Lord. I think there are seasons, times, people, I don't some combination of all of them. I, I believe there's people who can get very excited about the work of Jesus Christ on the cross and get much less excited about uh, what he has to say about how they ought to live their life. It's like knowing a part of God and not all of God. I think there's many of us in seasons and times in our life and different sorts of people who can come to church on Sunday and say, yes, Lord, yes, Lord, yes, Lord, amen and amen, all of that. But on Monday, their 9 to 5 endeavor or their 7 to 6 endeavor or however long they work, that endeavor is largely a secular transactional environment where God is not present. I'm here to say you're rejecting a massive part of who God says he is. God has done more than save us. And we might say if all God did was save us to the other side of the sea, his promise would not yet be complete. His promise was to save them out and to take them too. And that's what he's doing with us, right? We celebrate Easter. We sing the song of Moses we know what God's done. We know what Christ has done for our life. And now we are in the state, where we are in life is after that celebration, knowing what is done, we're in the part of life where we learn 
who God really is, all of who he is, his provision for us and his lordship over us. That's, that's where we'll be these next several weeks, is the God who provides. The God of the manna, the bread of life. Let's pray. Lord, as we set out, I pray, uh, Lord, first of all, I want to lift up uh, those here who may not know the story well. I pray you would encourage them this week to read it. I, I pray you would give them the confidence in their spirit that the, the, the Bible is accessible to them. It's for them to read and know and, and uh, invite into their life, Lord. I pray, pray that first of all. Uh, Father, for those who feel like they have the story memorized, I pray that you would come beside them and whisper to them uh, that they don't know it nearly as well as they ought. And that your word is uh, ever deep. And Father, I pray for all of us that we would uh, not simply be Christians uh, excited about the cross, but content with you as we move about on the way to your land, I pray, Lord. Be our God of provision and show us that. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.